You're listening to This Rhetorical Life, a podcast dedicated to the practice, pedagogy, and public circulation of rhetoric in our lives. Hello, everyone. I'm Carrie Ann Soto. And I'm Bonnie Cannon. And today we will be talking about the intersections of academic freedom, academic labor, and Palestine. This past year, there have been a series of events that have shaken people's business-as-usual attitudes, one of them being the events in Ferguson, which we discussed in episode 24. About a month before Michael Brown's death occurred here in the U.S., Israel launched Operation Protective Edge, which killed over 2,200 people, over 2,100 of them being from Gaza. Within this context, numerous scholars and activists voiced a public outcry using a variety of media. The most publicized case of academic dissent was Stephen Salida's. During Operation Protective Edge, Salida wrote a series of tweets condemning the Israeli government for its military offense. Salida had just left his tenured position at Virginia Tech to accept an associate professor position in the American Indian Studies Department at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Following his tweets, Chancellor Phyllis Wise of the University of Illinois informed Salida that he no longer had the job. More than 6,000 academics pledged to boycott the University of Illinois unless Salida was reinstated and close to 19,000 individuals signed a general petition in his support. Much of the public outcry around the rescinding of Salida's job offer was framed in concerns about academic freedom. There have been efforts from academics in rhetoric and composition to discuss the call to engage in solidarity work with Palestine. Matthew Abraham's book, Out of Bounds, Academic Freedom and the Question of Palestine, explores how the concept of academic freedom applies to discussions dealing with Palestine. Discussions about boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, also known as BDS, have also become more visible in professional academic organizations in recent years, particularly as academics have debated whether to support the call to boycott Israeli academic institutions. The call for BDS was initiated by Palestinian civil society in 2005 and has been endorsed by over 170 Palestinian civil society organizations. In December 2013, the American Studies Association passed a resolution in support of BDS. And this fall, scholars from the National Communication Association held a teach-in on BDS, Karma Chavez being one of the organizers. Within MLA, scholars continue to push for a resolution in support of BDS. And during her keynote address at the Conference on College Composition and Communication in Indianapolis last March, Angela Davis made a call for C's and read comp scholars more broadly to support BDS. Davis echoed this call at this year's National Women's Studies Association Conference. After his job offer at University of Illinois was rescinded, Salida began speaking at college campuses across the country. This October, he came to Syracuse University to talk specifically about the links between academic labor, academic freedom, and Palestine. We sat down with Salida to talk to him about his experiences in academia and the narratives surrounding his story. We also asked him for advice for young scholars who are doing academic work around highly politicized issues. In addition, we spoke with two Syracuse University professors who helped to organize Salida's talk on campus, Vincent Lloyd and Carol Fada Conray. Both have a long-standing commitment to Palestine solidarity work and speak to its intersections with academic labor and academic freedom. First, we will share our conversation with Stephen Salida. Can you 
speak about your experiences writing on issues of colonization, imperialism, racism, indigenous rights at various academic labor tiers as a student, junior faculty member, and tenured faculty member? I found, and this is in my experience, that the pressures are, are nearly identical. You know, being an undergraduate student, graduate student, uh, junior faculty, tenured faculty member, and probably would be the case for, you know, uh, you know, endowed chairs. And and anytime you take on systems of, of state power, then there's going to be a backlash, not just an administrative backlash, but, um, you know, again, in my experience, a, a backlash from the you know, communities that, that have branded themselves as, um, you know, respectable and, and responsible. You mentioned free speech, academic freedom, labor, and, and Palestine. Labor and Palestine stand out to me as, as sites of, of discussion and contestation that tend to, uh, you know, produce strong reaction especially uh, when we're not just talking about labor in the abstract, but as a site of material engagement, as a site of anti-corporate politics, right? As, as a site of capitalist critique, or I should say critique of, of capitalism. I think Palestine uh, dovetails nicely into that because it's, as both a political symbol and as a geography, it, it, it stands in such stark contrast to, you know, to the neoliberal imperatives of, of, of the American government and by extension the Israeli government. Um, so I think that any kind of discourse that sort of challenges the, the, you know, the commonplaces of, the commonplaces, I guess, of, of corporate authority, right, is, is going to receive backlash, often from people who don't feel particularly Invested in maintenance of the capital state, capitalist state, but but who have sort of been socialized in such a way as as to feel threatened by that sort of critique. In some ways, the uh, the stakes might might get even even greater. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the more accomplished one becomes, or the more one advances in in her or his career. And I don't want to uh, in any way discount you know the tremendous things at stake for undergraduate and graduate students and, and for junior faculty at all, because there's, there's a great deal at stake, and I don't think it's, it's wise to hierarchize these things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but see, a- academe is part and parcel of a capitalist system that thrives on, on the promise of reward. And there's always a reward to chase, always. So people think, oh, when I get tenure, you know, I can just let her rip. Well, no, you can't. Because then you're going to want to get to full professor. And when you get to full professor, oh, you know, all right, then I'll have all the power. No, you don't have any power compared to the administration. And, and don't, don't think that you do. And besides, then you have that endowed chair to chase. Or maybe you've grown <laughs> sick of your campus and you want to move elsewhere. Right? right? Nobody's going to hire a controversial scholar, right. you know, or very few places will. Or maybe by the time you've gotten to full professor, you've become so accustomed Right to uh, you know to to keeping quiet and to playing it safe that that all of a sudden when you're you know 55 years old you're not all of a sudden going to change and become that radical that you dreamed of being when you were 23, mm-hmm. you know so it it's I, I don't think the pressure ever goes away. Salida's observations about speaking out within academia echo Eileen Shells in our episode 20, thinking collectively about academic labor, where she encourages young scholars to not censor their voices. Both Salida and Shell 
call young academics to task. We can't wait to speak out until we have more job security. We asked Salida how he sees this playing out at the different campuses where he has talked. I'm seeing a tremendous amount of enthusiasm at the idea of taking on these uh, narrative and moral structures of power, these uh, you know these these common places of, of corporate dominion in, in, in the university, the corruption endemic to to a lot of uh, administrative uh, practices. I think that on the whole, students are engaged in precisely the way that faculty should encourage them to be engaged. Salida elaborated on the limits of academic freedom and the relationship between discussions of academic freedom and discussions of Palestine. There's a certain set of conceits around academic freedom that limit its, its functionality and its practice and you know those, those conceits often have to do with uh, you know critiques of state power, critiques of colonization, critiques of structural violence, right, uh, rather than critiques of obvious overt violence. Um, and I think when we engage in, in that sort of analysis, um, we, we very often uh, end up in, in a type of trouble that academic freedom doesn't always uh, shield us from, right? Palestine is, is a great example. You know, anti-Zionism, I'll say even, even more specifically, is a, a great example of how, um, you know, or a great example of the inherent limits to academic freedom, as long as academic freedom remains tethered to, um, you know, dominant paradigms. You could think of academic freedom as a, as a resource. And like all resources in, in capitalist economies, its distribution is fundamentally unequal, right? It's, it's not a resource that we all have access to, even though it, it, it feigns equality, but uh, it's practice. It's not equal. It's it's its accessibility is not uh, equal. So, but Palestine also, I think, uh, you know, invigorates is probably the right word. Discussion of Palestine invigorates discussion of academic freedom. It forces us to to look at its limitations. That's what my situation is doing. Uh, and I think discussion of of academic freedom in the inverse, um, you know, sort of can can invigorate uh, discussion of of Palestine in important ways. So, you know, I, I think that, that it's important to look at the two in an academic context anyway, to look at them in conjunction with one another and think of the ways that, that or think about the ways or think through the ways that in which, um, in which uh, you know, the, the inherent uh, limitations of the neoliberal structures governing academe, right, inform what sorts of political issues and modes of critique are verboten, and which of those are, are acceptable. Because Salida has published numerous books, been included in anthologies, published popular journalistic pieces, and ultimately lost his job offer following a series of tweets, we asked him to speak about his experiences disseminating his scholarly work and political critique on these various media platforms. What are the different rhetorical approaches elicited by different genres? There's a politics of, of respectability that, that, that happens in academe, and it exists for a variety of reasons, some, some more convincing than others, uh, some more useful than others. The lingua franca of, of academic writing tends to limit a sort of rhetorical creativity that 
publishing, um, you know, essays on, on online magazines or Facebook statuses or even tweets, right? Uh, gives a little more room for tweets uh, in particular are, you know, the, 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 the platform does certain things. You know, the, the platform demands brevity, right? Uh, people who've been trained in, you know, four, five, six, seven years of, of, of grad school, you know, are, aren't often the best at brevity. Right? It, it happens in real time, so there's always an implicit context, always. So you can't just read a tweet like it's an aphorism, right? The, it always exists in, in a context, and there's always a, there's always a set of shared assumptions that has to be maintained in order for a conversation on that platform to happen. That's not normally the case in academic writing, where quite rightly we're, we're, we're meant to, uh, to invoke right, and to draw out our, our, and to justify with evidence or whatever our assumption. You know, if I'm having a conversation on Twitter with somebody about Palestine, right, then, and we're in agreement, then a shared assumption is going to be that, that Israel is the aggressor. If I'm arguing with somebody on Twitter about Palestine, right, we might not necessarily share the assumption that Israel's the aggressor, but the person with whom I'm debating knows that that's my assumption, right? And I understand that, that his assumption is, is that, uh, you know, the Palestinians are the aggressors, right? So, again, there's, there's, there's a context there. It makes it uh, a really interesting platform to play around with. But um, I, I, I'm skeptical about the idea that, that we can translate, you know, really difficult scholarly concepts onto that platform in a way that people are going to find legible. Mm -hmm. You know, people outside of academe, I mean. Because I've done that a lot, or I've tried to do that a lot. Tried to take sort of basic precepts of decolonial theory and decolonial thinking and sort of translate them into a pithy 140 character tweet, right? And people just sort of go mad, like, what in the hell are you talking about? That makes absolutely no sense. You know, it's like, no, that one term I used, right? Uh, you know, it's supposed to signal A, B, C, D, E, and F, but people aren't familiar with that particular term or a certain disciplinary usage of it, then, then it's, it's going to signal nothing. But I do think that social media platforms allow us um, a space for organizing and for provoking and, you know, for, for being thoughtful in, in, in a different way that is very often restricted in academic forums, which, in my opinion, ha tend to have a very, um, a very stringent definition of, of polemical for example, or maybe you could say a very generous definition of, of polemical, right? Like, you know, I, I think that it's well, not necessarily important, but it can be, um, it can be a, a useful thing to go into spaces and onto platforms wherein you can state things directly and you can engage in a, in a debate without, um, you know, w without all of the, uh, I guess, uh, baggage that, <laughs> that, that comes along with, uh, with, with academic debate. What kinds of scholarly and pedagogical tactics do you think we might be able to use to take on that marginalization of so-called political work? For me, uh, it seems particularly important to communicate openly around the ways in which language is used to not only marginalize but but very often to um, you know to, to to banish people right who who 
you know, implicitly or sometimes even explicitly who, who aren't playing by a certain set of, of disciplinary rules, right, or who insist on pushing disciplinary boundaries. The first thing we do, in my opinion, is take seriously our charge as, as graduate students or scholars, and that is to think critically and to complicate and problematize linguistic and rhetorical commonplaces, right? So when we sense that somebody's uh, being outcasted in some way, think about why, understand what's happening, understand who has a stake in what's happening, and, and think closely about what language is, 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 is being used to make that ostracization seem normal or normative, right? Uh, you know, we, we have to also be able to uh, understand other people, right, our peers, our colleagues, or even our enemies, right, on, on, on a level that goes beyond simply categorizing them into, uh, into uh, you know, uh, specific political uh, taxonomies. I think it's important that, that we communicate on, on I don't know, at a, at a level that goes beyond mere analysis of, of, of rhetoric and, and somehow can get into, uh, get into the organic, right? Um, you know, get into the, I guess, the spaces of, of, of consciousness where we can forge connections that go beyond a simple, um, for example, identity politics. Most important, we can't let people feel isolated when they, they take on power. I think that's the important thing. To me, that you know, and I know it's not a prescription, right? Or you know, a, you know, do this, do that, A, B, C, or D. It's, it's. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm talking about a broad ethic. But the reason people don't act uh, or don't always act on on their consciousness is because they know that they're going to be alone, or they feel like they're going to be alone, and they're going to get caught. You know, uh, they're going to get caught up. They're going to get caught. Uh, you know, hanging in the wind and and you know, people will tend to their self-interest. And we, we, I think we have to recognize what a tremendous amount of, of power we have as, as um, you know, uh, as, as communities of, of grad students and scholars, uh, as, as, as groups of people with a commitment, you know, to, to making uh, the university space and the world around it more equitable. And so instead of, uh, you know, ostracizing or, or abandoning or ignoring somebody who, who's, who's getting in trouble, right, with the system in some way. I think it's, it's proper and, and ethical and useful to find out what's going on and think about the, the terminologies of the conflagration, right, and figure out, uh, figure out who's benefiting from this particular form of troublemaking or this particular form of, of repression. I, I believe in activism with, uh, with purpose, with integrity, definitely with unity, and most important, and this often gets overlooked, with compassion. I really feel like we, 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 we need to, to act with um, compassion. It's, it's a more important quality to me than, than uh, being able to use the right keywords in the right contexts. People are not only concerned about their own place in the hierarchy, right? Uh, you know, the academic hierarchy, but they're also concerned about uh, my well-being as a human being. And that's, that's, um, that's, it's a lovely thing. It's a really beautiful thing. As difficult as this era of higher education can be, uh, one benefit to it is that, that, that tons of organizations exist than was the case in, in maybe the pre-digital age. 
Right, so for somebody working on ethnic studies, I would say check out critical ethnic studies, go to the conference, uh, you know, or American studies, check out the American studies conference. Um, you know, tons of tons of supportive people there. Um, there are online communities. Um, there are, if you're a graduate student, uh, scholars, you know, to, you know, in your field that you might not even necessarily know and that you've never met to reach out to who will absolutely be responsive and who will sort of plug you into um, supportive and sustaining communities. Um, you know, so you know, these, these places are there. Seek them out. Um, you know, there are, there are always, you know, politics and squirmishes. But, you know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to sense or to participate in, uh, you know, communities in, in academe over the past 10, 11 years of, of, of deep friendship and deep closeness. And it, it makes, uh, for lack of a better phrase, being outspoken a lot easier thing to do because I know that, that, that we're, we're going to take care of one another. Go to the spaces that feel comfortable and stay the hell away from, uh, you know, the people and, and, and the scholarly communities that, 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 that just that give you an icky feeling, right? Uh, I would listen to my instinct there and, you know, fi find, the, find, find the academe that actually practices what, what it preaches. And you know, rather than than the academe that that you know the administrative driven one that that so many of us um, you know have have come to find problems with. talk right after our interview, Salida elaborated on the idea of how the rhetoric of civility functions in the academy. In his essay, Normatizing State Power, which appears in the edited collection The Imperial University, Salida writes that the everyday, often passive-aggressive behavior of labeling scholarship polemical or political serves to marginalize academic work that speaks back to state power. Through the rhetoric of civility, Salida suggested, state power ends up shaping an academic ethos dictating what students and scholars feel that they can or cannot say, on or off campus. I think back to a conversation with a former professor who told me that an article I was writing about post-9-11 Islamophobia was quote-unquote radical, and that because of the combination of this kind of work with being read as a person of color, I would have a difficult time in academia. In his essay, Salida describes these types of comments as insidious and quote, undermining whatever protections academic freedom has the power to offer, end quote. The bodies we inhabit and the scholarship we produce dictates how much or little of the resource of academic freedom that we are granted. Framing a discussion of Palestine within questions of academic labor and academic freedom could be seen as playing into a specific rhetoric of civility that prevents Palestine from being the framing piece. And yet, we want to engage with rhetorical frameworks that circulate critiques of state power more widely within academia. Following our interview, Salida remarked that in the end, he is glad that his case has led to a more public conversation about Palestine, but this has come at a high price for him. So the precariousness of academic employment, even when one has received tenure, demands that we further explore the intersections of academic labor and academic freedom. I sat down with Vincent Lloyd, a professor in the religion department at Syracuse, to speak about this link. He also discusses his experiences with campus-based BDS organizing and the role that rhetoric and composition can play in countering the rhetorical commonplaces of civility that Salida points to.
Could you talk a little bit about your particular interest in Salida's story and your experience organizing the event on this campus? Um, and then also how th those experiences are reflective or not of larger trends? Sure. So first, maybe I'll speak as a, a part of the Labor Studies Working Group um, on campus, which is part of the Program for the Advancement of Research in Conflict and Collaboration uh, in Maxwell. Uh, and the Labor Studies Working Group, uh, which has been around for about uh, four years now, uh, is interested in uh, the various ways that uh, labor is made precarious, or at least this is one of the main themes that we've been thinking about and exploring uh, through a series of events and symposia over the last several years. Uh, we've uh, thought about uh, dairy workers in uh, upstate New York uh, making the uh, milk that goes into uh, this uh, fancy Greek uh, yogurt, uh, many of these workers uh, undocumented and in very precarious situations with uh, bad living conditions and, and low wages. Uh, we've thought about uh, the situation of adjuncts, uh, adjunct faculty at Syracuse and elsewhere. Um, and I think Salida's uh, case, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, because he seems uh, like, uh, on the one hand, he seems like he's in the most uh, stable kind of position, right? A tenured faculty member at a major uh, research university. Uh, but I, I think what happened to him uh, really shows how all labor is being made uh, precarious uh, in our uh, contemporary uh, uh, moment. That uh, Salida, who seems like he would be uh, so far from the, the dairy worker in upstate New York or the adjunct uh, instructor, uh, is discovering that um, uh, his labor is also, in a sense, contingent and can be, uh, his job can be uh, taken away uh, if. Uh, the powers uh, that be uh, decide um, uh, with the input of uh, wealthy donors uh, that, uh, that uh, his job is going to be taken away. Um, so uh, from the uh, labor studies perspective, I think making those connections um, and so speaking to members of the Syracuse campus community uh, who might not feel like they're affected by uh, the undocumented dairy worker, you know, uh, a few dozen miles from us, uh, showing them that uh, there's something about the state of labor in uh, our contemporary era in the U.S. Uh, and uh, more broadly um, that uh, needs our attention. Uh, so uh, from the labor studies perspective, I think that's why the working group has been particularly interested in Salida's uh, case. I mean, you know, someone concerned with uh, Palestine uh, more generally in the, the politics of uh, uh, thinking about Palestine in the U.S., his case has, uh, because it's drawn a, a broad coalition of uh, support, also provides an opportunity to uh, get centrist and uh, liberal and liberal-minded uh, members of university communities uh, thinking more critically about uh, Palestine and thinking about you know, why it is that this issue is so, uh, so much of a hot wire uh, at universities around uh, around the U.S. It sounds like part of both the interest from a labor studies perspective and from investment in solidarity work with Palestine that Salida, as a sort of a case example, opens up space for potential solidarities or at least ways for thinking about them. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and I, I mean, I think the the uh, I mean, academic freedom is is a term that's uh, used uh, in many ways and perhaps doesn't have uh, the most political potency behind it. But academic labor uh, and Palestine are both the terms that do uh, bring uh, with them a lot of political uh, potency. Uh, and so I think using academic freedom as a way to open these more more political conversations uh, and uh, more transformative, potentially transformative conversations about. Palestine and about labor and allowing people to see the connections between uh, between these uh, issues is, is really uh, important and uh, the Salida Talk and Visit is a great opportunity for, for those connections to be made visible. I asked Vincent Lloyd about how he first became invested in links between Palestine and labor 
and asked him to talk about his experience organizing on campus at various stages of his academic career. When I was uh, an undergraduate, um, I uh, went to a talk and helped organize a, a talk uh, by uh, an alumnus of uh, my college, uh, Princeton, uh, who uh, had been active in uh, organizing around South African divestment a generation or two before I had been a student. And he recalled how this tactic of divestment uh, had been used, uh, talked about how the administration had responded, the, the sorts of um, organizing that just the call for divestment had, had made possible, and, you know, it pointed uh, towards other issues uh, that call for this kind of, um, uh, that, that students uh, today, this is in the, around 2001, uh, 2002, uh, should get agitated about, and of course one of these was uh, Israel-Palestine, and out of that um, a core group of uh, students uh, got excited about uh, calling for a divestment, uh, so we uh, asked uh, uh, Princeton University to divest from uh, businesses uh, uh, active in Israel until Israel was in compliance with uh, the Geneva Convention and uh, various UN resolutions, um, framing it very much in the sort of international law uh, language. Right? So just sort of seeing what happened in reaction to that, it was either the first or second university-based divestment campaign in the U.S., which you know quickly sort of snowballed, and you know within a few months there were maybe a dozen or twenty campuses that were calling for divestment with a similar sort of international law framework. Seeing how faculty had to were sort of forced to make a choice, and how students who hadn't thought about these issues could potentially be. Um, uh, mobilized around uh, around the question of Palestine uh, was very enlightening for me as a you know, a 19-year-old or 20-year-old just getting my feet wet in, in politics. I did some uh, labor organizing before that, but this is the first uh, really contentious uh, uh, sort of thing that I'd done. And seeing uh, Jewish classmates whose parents didn't want to talk to them when they got involved in the divestment organizing and the uh, sort of uh, contentiousness even on the sort of um, left community uh, in, uh, that I was uh, around, in the vegetarian co-op I was around. Uh, you know, I, I, although everyone was generally supportive, you know, some people uh, were sort of scared uh, to participate in the campaign, got pressure from their families not to participate, or uh, opposed uh, the campaign. I had uh, maybe uh, 15 seconds of, uh, of fame at the time, and it was on uh, national television talking about uh, the divestment campaign. And, got death threats via email and this sort of thing. Started as a junior faculty member at um, Georgia State University, a big urban uh, public research university in Atlanta. There was a, a campaign to cut off ties between the university and the Israeli security forces. There had been an exchange program between Atlanta police and Israeli security forces facilitated by the university uh, teaching Israelis uh, drug enforcement tactics in, uh, in Georgia and teaching Georgia police you know, anti-terror tactics uh, in uh, Palestine. So we uh, became involved in that in that campaign, which was you know exciting to see. I think just in the ten years or so that had passed, uh, that you know the issue had become, I think, more palatable to a broader array on the the sort of uh, left, although it was still very very fraught. Um, but uh, I mean, we still encountered this sort of uh, amazing resistance and corporate sponsorship, right, uh, on the part of you know the people who were running this. Uh, running the program in question, the really uh, bad program. They were getting all this outside money that was sort of not even going directly through the university, but to the sort of endowment or foundation. And 
um, and the, they were opposing our uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and so on. So it was uh, still the sort of amazing energy that goes into the resistance uh, uh, by the pro-Israel forces uh, to uh, Palestine solidarity organizing which is still sort of astounding why. Uh, I mean, there must be something uh, especially uh, threatening um, or especially uh, um, scary, uh, irrationally scary, uh, to provoke that kind, of, um, that kind of reaction. One of the questions that we asked Stephen Salida is sort of how he's seen the various narratives about his story being picked up. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really uh, reassuring uh, the extent to which the uh, academic community, uh, pretty much uh, across the board, with some uh, notable exceptions, has rallied behind uh, Salida and seeing Salida's case as an example of uh, administrative bloat and corporate influence on universities and uh, all sorts of uh, problems that uh, have concerned uh, academics for a long time um, and. Among them, uh, especially notably, right, the loss of power of academics, uh, of faculty to govern their institutions, right, the, the ideal of uh, a university being a, a place that is you know, run by uh, its professors uh, is one that uh, still a lot of professors hold and a lot of administrators have forgotten about. Uh, and uh, I think this Elijah case uh, you know, reminds faculty that this is an ideal that we care about. Uh, and uh, gives uh, leverage uh, to uh, continue the conversation about how can we as faculty uh, sort of take back the power that we have lost to govern govern these um, institutions to a combination of administrators and corporations and wealthy individuals uh, that sort of collude to make the university uh, a business rather than an educational institution. So thinking about the the students and young scholars who might be listening, where do you think we can find support for doing scholarship that might be labeled political and might call out some of these trends within the university? And implicit in that is asking, where have you found support or how have you found sort of a productive space for those questions and that type of scholarship? And then specific to the field we're in, rhetoric and composition, where we're you know, both you know, wanting to, to push back and analyze dominant discourse and then also working with students as they frame arguments both for popular and academic audiences. What are the various ways that we can keep these things in mind and push against them, you know, in our writing and scholarship? Maybe I'll start with where I've found support in. I think the, the Labor Studies Working Group here at Syracuse has been a really wonderful uh, resource uh, where I've been able to connect with other uh, faculty across the university uh, who have similar uh, interests and uh, concerns as I do and are oriented towards taking actions that uh, are both uh, increasing awareness on campus of issues we're concerned about uh, and uh, are in some ways, uh, often small, confronting uh, the, the powers that, that uh, concern us. We organized a rally uh, last uh, spring, and I think it's the first time I've ever been part of an academic group that organized a rally, which was sort of an interesting process to see academics trying to figure out how to make posters and that sort of thing. But I mean, I think that it's an exciting uh, motto that uh, is not just about you know talking about our concerns or how we you know our uh, justifiable outrage uh, at, at conditions, but also sharing uh, research, workshopping uh, things that we're working on and um, uh, and uh, taking action. That, that pushes these issues uh, forward uh, across the campus, not just um, within a department. And you know, I think every university has these sorts of uh, uh, corners or is receptive to uh, having these sorts of corners created. 
I mean, in, in terms of uh, uh, rhetoric and, and writing and, and training students, I mean, I, I think rhetoric, you know, at its best is the, you know, the perfect way to, the perfect uh, place to uh, be thinking critically about the world around us, right? And one has the opportunity to take, uh, you know, any uh, sort of uh, uh, issue or phenomenon that one uh, finds and you know, uh, argue persuasively uh, about it uh, in a way that doesn't take conventional wisdom for granted uh, and that examines why is that the conventional wisdom? You know, uh, who, who is it, you know, uh, who benefits from this conventional, uh, conventional wisdom? One of the reasons that I was drawn to uh, getting a PhD in rhetoric, uh, although I think sometimes uh, the discipline is either more or less uh, uh, critical, uh, that's the case with every discipline, and that, that potential that the discipline has is, is the most exciting thing. Hello again, this is Carrie Ann, and I'll be sharing with you my conversation with Carol Fadakonray, Associate Professor of English here in Syracuse University. Before sharing our conversation with you today, I should emphasize that as Professor Fadakonray and I talked about the role of her scholarship in creating communities and building solidarities, especially here in SU, there was an emphasis on risks and rewards. The theme for the 2015 Conference on College Composition and Communication a theme that has been coming up in a series of exchanges about my own scholarship. After my presentation at the National Women's Studies Association Conference, which was held in Puerto Rico this year, a woman spoke to me about her participation in the 1970s protest against ROTC recruitment of students from the University of Puerto Rico, a topic that I was addressing. She warned me against the repercussions that such political work might have in the future as she found it really difficult to get a teaching position in the same university where she was protesting as a student. At one point, she remarked, it's just like talking about Gaza. In other words, it is risky to talk about topics that challenge state power. Discussing these issues with my feminist mentor, Donna Owen, she remarked about risks in academia. She said, there are risks that must be taken. What are the risks of not taking risks? Was it risky to challenge slavery, settler colonialism? She further suggested that this is a moment where people who might already be politicized around race and imperialism can become politicized around BDS as well. This has been the case for me. As I continue my research on Puerto Rican nationalist rhetoric and their descent towards military occupation of Puerto Rican territories. Like Salida, I do not see a choice in doing this type of research. I grew up noticing the effects of U.S. imperial occupation on the place I live. As a young academic, I am struggling with the question of what it means to negotiate academic freedom with being an academic laborer, what it means for some of us to be able to speak freely and with no consequence. In other words, I'm a subject of academic freedom. But I most certainly cannot equate my experiences with academic freedom and the discussions surrounding Stephen Salida's firing. When we do enjoy academic freedom, we need to recognize that this is not a universal condition. As Salida remarked during our interview with him, academic freedom is a resource that is not equally distributed. So I'm left wondering, who has the right to speak freely and with no punitive consequences, and who does not? In what follows, Carol Fata Conray offers advice about how to move forward with these questions. 
Our conversation began with a reference to Stephen Salida's talk, her entry point into organizing the event, as well as the intersections of academic labor and academic freedom within the campus context. I asked, could you tell us a bit more about your interests in his story and mm. the experiences you had organizing the event? How does it reflect, or not, larger trends within academia? Well, my entry point into Salaita's uh, uh, story is Stephen has been uh, a tremendous uh, help and mentor in my work. I work on Arab-American studies. I'm also invested in uh, narratives of anti-Arab uh, racism and anti-Islamophobic narratives and how to respond and challenge these overarching racist narratives uh, that target uh, Arabs and, and, and Muslims and uh, uh, surrounding specific struggles within the Arab world, including the Israel-Palestine uh, struggle. So my investment in it was to have Steve come and talk about uh, this debate and bring in his story because I know how uh, much Steve is uh, a compassionate and thoughtful and committed uh, scholar and intellectual and I wanted his story and that perspective on him to be very evident on campus. I thought that was very, very uh, important because um, with everything that is and, and or was and is circulating about his story, it's very easy uh, and it ha happens repeatedly of dehumanizing someone based on the stories that circulate about them. And I think there's something very powerful in him standing uh, there and talking about his story and fielding questions so graciously. Uh, I know that there was a lot of resistance uh, to his coming to campus. Uh, some uh, worry uh, about him being on campus because part of the narrative was um, presenting him as an anti-Semite. And uh, my response to those worries and those concerns was that part of academic freedom and part of our intellectual community is to talk about these things and uh, talk about them publicly and campus is the primary place where you can have these uh, conversations. So that's why it was very important for me to have Steve on campus addressing these concerns. One of the questions we asked Salida revolved around how the different narratives of academic labor and academic freedom have been picked up and how these are connected to Palestine. I also asked Carol Fatakanre about how she has noticed these narratives circulating. As far as academic uh, freedom and, you know, what are these narratives that are being circulating or constructed around Stephen Salaita's case, it is definitely about academic uh, uh, freedom, but also underlying that narrative is, of course, the pro-Palestinian stance that's, that Stephen has taken, and along with that, his pro-BDS stance. So this is not merely any kind of case of academic freedom, but it is embedded in uh, a very embattled uh, uh, case and context of BDS and, and how BDS now has been circulated and discussed within uh, and across college campuses. College campuses are now the primary uh, battleground for discussing and talking about BDS. Uh, so uh, this uh, huge shift and support to the BDS uh, movement uh, is very prominent, and it's specifically prominent on college campuses. So it's not 
really a surprise that the targeting of pro-BDS and pro-Palestine uh, scholars and thinkers and activists is also being done mm. in the sphere of the, of the campus. That's not very surprising. Mm. Uh, part of the narrative, and some people are saying that, well, it could be anyone. Right? It could, what happened to Steven Salida could happen to anyone because this is a case when academic freedom is being stripped away from the person. So if it happens to him, it could happen to anyone. I disagree with that uh, because I think you know, his case is not merely, it is primarily an issue of, of academic freedom and freedom of speech, but it also has these roots and it is embedded in the Palestinian context and the struggle over uh, who gets to speak, you know, and, and how are they framed when they speak, framed in <laughs> the double sense of the, of the term. Uh, so um, going back to what Stephen himself has said, that, you know, there's an exceptionalism around uh, the First Amendment because it, it definitely applies, but there's, uh, uh, it doesn't apply when it comes to the Palestinian voice. So then in thinking about the narrative of academic freedom, then mm -hmm. we have to ask the, the question of whose freedom, right? Who gets to speak and who does not get to speak, right? Uh, and whose uh, voice is heard? Like, because even when you speak, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be heard. So whose voice is heard and by whom? Uh, how is that voice that is often not heard made to reach a larger audience, right? right? In asking Professor Fata Conray about how she first became interested in questions of academic labor and academic freedom, and about her experiences engaging with these issues at various labor tiers, as a student, grad student, TA, junior faculty, for example, it turned into a question about her specific genealogy and how her stance has been impacted, changed, or shifted all throughout. The responsibilities change with the different stances that you take or the different positions that you're in, right? And I think it's very important to be aware and reflect on the, these responsibilities that come with you being a student versus, uh, you know, like a student being in a classroom sitting, you know, versus you standing in front of a group of people teaching versus you uh, having tenure and having that so, I mean, I'm using quotes here, a certain power, right? So the stance doesn't change, but the responsibility and the awareness of that, um, self-awareness of that changes. I came to the States as, you know, I, I started my PhD in 2000 as an international student. Uh, I came from Lebanon where I uh, was born and raised and I had spent all my life there and I had never been to the U.S. before coming for my PhD. So, uh, you know, and I came uh, to the U.S., uh, you know, having uh, been raised and, and lived all my life in Lebanon, you know, I was steeped in a kind of political uh, perspective. I, I lived all throughout the war and, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a product of that. So coming uh, to the U.S., and that was also like right before 9-11, uh, uh, and witnessing the lack of politicization on campus in response to 9-11 uh, and the aftermath, the war on terror and the war in Iraq and all that, that was, but that was pretty um, uh, uh, disturbing uh, to me as someone who is coming, you know, having been steeped in that like political uh, background and it's not really something that you choose. <laughs> uh, you don't choose to be a political uh, person or not, you're just 
that political person based on your uh, background and the experiences that you've had. So, you know, this is how I came in, and, and um, at Purdue, you immediately start teaching, right? So I was also uh, standing in front of uh, students with a very marked um, body uh, as a person of, of color, and also to kind of learn what it is to be, you know, how would it, how it is to be a person of color and a kind of, um, uh, uh, that kind of white dominant uh, uh, society and intellectual community, right? The kind of um, expectations that are placed on you to educate others, uh, you know, so that's also part of the labor, right? And, and part of the expectations and then you start learning how to deal with that and negotiate that and, and ultimately reject that because it is not our responsibility to educate, uh, you know, to, to kind of be the native informants. Mm -hmm. And there's a responsibility uh, on the part of fellow uh, students, of colleagues, of, to educate themselves too and not only rely on you for that education. Of course, you do have a certain responsibility in intervening and teaching, and, but that's, that's in a different capacity. So that was, you know, my experience and entrance into that kind of uh, intellectual uh, the political, apolitical uh, atmosphere on a college campus in the U.S. And, and really, that was consistent, right? I mean, even at the height of the war in Iraq, uh, first in, in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, and I was deeply disturbed and stunned by the silence on campus, right? Which is why this um, sit-in by students at Syracuse uh, has been immensely, uh, I, I hate to use the word exciting because I, I don't mean to kind of uh, thrive on it that way, but it's it's making me hopeful. It's, uh, re, you know, uh, uh, kind of making me see how these students are so invested and, and, uh, and that's, uh, that's amazing to me, honestly. As young academics dealing with these differentiations of power, especially for those of us who are marked as students of color, but also thinking of the pressure to comply with the commonplaces of civility that Salida mentioned in this interview, I'm thinking we need support systems. So I ended my interview by asking about her seeking out and building support systems. I think um, organizing and organizing around uh, solidarity communities and connecting with um, allies and creating networks of solidarity that way is so crucial, you know, because we cannot resist an isolation, right? We are stronger in consolidating our, our power and uh, working together, right? Uh, I think that's so important and seeking out those allies is, is very, very important. You know, one of the main things uh, that drove me to work on Arab American studies is, is you know, I was taking an ethnic uh, American lit class and, you know, there are all these different constituencies and communities and uh, I was looking, it's like, where are the Arabs? You know, where are the Arabs? And, and also it's, it was coming from a need to connect you know, and to connect how I was, uh, what I was going through to, you know, these larger uh, needs and, and larger concerns of the community. So I was trying to really forge a community through an intellectual engagement. And I quickly found out that I cannot do that without actually being connected with these other uh, Arab uh, mm -hmm. scholars who are also working on similar issues and thinking about and have sim similar commitments. 
so that's why I, you know, I ended up contacting Steve Salida out of nowhere, and I was like, I'm working on this, and mm-hmm. and that's why such generosity resonates because then it really is addressing a need that you have, right? And and these then you forge these connections that are so strong as a result because they're they're not kind of on the surface or like they go deep into certain commitments and investments. So that's how I formed my intellectual community by email and then I started going to conferences where I actually met these people in person and I've, you know, without these kind of uh, connections since since then. Mm. So that, that, you know, going back to these communities, even if they're not immediate, if, that, if you don't see them around you every day, but also it's important to have, you know, to seek out these allies uh, around you and form these uh, networks of solidarity. That's, that's very, very important. And the word that comes to mind is the resonance, like how your intellectual investments also resonate with uh, uh, those by, of others, you know, who are thinking and, and maybe not specifically in your field, but have uh, similar, and, and, and there's resonance, you know, this idea of resonance, that what you're invested in and what they're invested in, like they resonate. Mm. And I think that's important. They don't have to be working on the, on the same uh, thing. Thank you, thank you so much for talking with us. We want to thank Stephen Salida, Vincent Lloyd, and Carol Fadaconray for sharing their perspectives and positioning themselves as mentors and allies to young scholars doing politicized work. Thanks to This Rhetorical Life's production team for their help and for providing the space for us to engage in the conversations presented in this episode. Thank you all for listening. This Rhetorical Life is brought to you by graduate students in the Composition and Cultural Rhetoric Program at Syracuse University. Executive producers of This Rhetorical Life are Ben Kiebrick and Allison Hitt, with additional production and editing from Carrie Ann Soto, Tamara Isak, and Jana Rosinski. 